Genesis chapter 3, verses 1 through 8. Now the serpent was more crafty than any other beast of the field that the Lord God had made. He said to the woman, Did God actually say, You shall not eat of any tree in the garden? And the woman said to the serpent, We may eat of the fruit of the trees in the garden, but God said, You shall not eat of the fruit of the tree that is in the midst of the garden, neither shall you touch it, lest you die. But the serpent said to the woman, You will not surely die. For God knows that when you eat of it, your eyes will be opened, and you will be like God, knowing good and evil. So when the woman saw that the tree was good for food, and that it was a delight to the eyes, and that the tree was to be desired to make one wise, she took of its fruit and ate. And she also gave some to her husband, who was with her, and he ate. Then the eyes of both were opened, and they knew that they were naked. And they sewed fig leaves together and made themselves loincloths. And they heard the sound of the Lord God walking in the garden in the cool of the day. And the man and his wife hid themselves from the presence of the Lord God among the trees of the garden. And Ephesians chapter 4, verses 11 through 16. And he gave the apostles, the prophets, the evangelists, the shepherds and teachers to equip the saints for the work of ministry, for building up the body of Christ, until we all attain to the unity of the faith and of the knowledge of the Son of God, to mature manhood, to the measure of the stature of the fullness of Christ, so that we may no longer be children tossed to and fro by the waves and carried about by every wind of doctrine by human cunning, by craftiness and deceitful schemes. Rather, speaking the truth in love, we are to grow up in every way into him who is the head, into Christ, from whom the whole body, joined and held together by every joint with which it is equipped, when each part is working properly, makes the body grow so that it builds itself up in love. We as a church have been walking through a number of uh, things. One is the book of Revelation, and our purpose for going through the book of Revelation was to remind us that things are not as they seem, or things are not only as they seem. Not only is there a physical world in which we live, but there's a spiritual reality to the world in which we live. And so the book of Revelation helped open up that spiritual reality and gave us heaven's perspective on earth. But out of that, we were reminded that there is also a spirituality of the lives that we live. We, we don't just live physical lives. We aren't just products of the environment. Uh, we're not just uh, understandable uh, by science and by physical realities. There's a whole spiritual world that we interact with and that interacts with us. And so part of where we're going for the next couple of weeks and we've been looking at it is to just talk about the work of our enemy, uh, the work of what the Bible describes as our enemy, and that is Satan. We have, uh, I asked Chris to read a couple of those scriptures, um, but the one thing that it really is going to be my launching off point is this um, verse that was in uh, Ephesians where it says that we are to be no longer children tossed to and fro by craftiness and deceitful schemes. In other words, there's a real battle that we're waged in. We have a real opponent who is crafty and deceitful in his attacks in our lives. I, I'm not a real sports um, fan, but I understand that 
that the higher up you go in sports, um, the more intense it is as you prepare for a game, uh, your preparation for that game. And so teams use all manner of ways in which to prepare their players for a particular game that they're up against. If uh, they're playing a certain team, they might review the last 10, 15 games that that team has played. They might uh, talk about the coach and the particular strategies of the coach and the ways that that coach uses different plays to accomplish uh, success for that team. Uh, they might look at physical cues that come from the sideline. They might look at body language. Um, they might uh, look at particular players on the field and note what their strengths and their weaknesses are. Maybe if, there, if there's an injury amongst uh, some of them to say, well, how can we take advantage of that injury um, for our gain? And so there's a, a very real strategy that takes place in trying to understand your opponent so that you can defeat them. Well, that is the same that goes for us as we walk in this world, as we think about the strategies of one of our opponents, which is uh, Satan or the devil or the ancient serpent. It helps that we're aware of his strategies and his schemes, the, way that he, the ways that he devises to trip us up and to cause us to fall and to stumble. Remember what we said uh, last week, that one of the metaphors that Scripture uses to describe Satan is that he prowls around like a roaring lion, a very clear image any of us can conjure up in our heads, but Satan prowls around like a roaring lion seeking those that he can devour. And Peter's advice to us is be sober-minded, be clear-thinking, put on your thinking caps about this reality. Don't be naive to the spiritual realities of the world around us. Be sober-minded and be watchful. Why? Because one of the chief strategies of uh, the evil one is deception. And he deceives us through temptations and through accusations, which we'll talk about a little bit more later. One individual wrote a long, long time ago, we ought rather to be all the more watchful since we have a serpent to deal with which can hide his deadly poison with beautiful shining skin. But he's also dangerous to those, as, those of us who are children of God as we walk with God. He's dangerous to the children of God, if not to extinguish their light, then to eclipse its luster. If not to cause a shipwreck, then to raise a storm. And if not to hinder our entrance into heaven, yet to molest us along the way. And so Satan is at work in our lives trying to trip us up. He has so many different approaches, and we'll look at some of those maybe today and then uh, maybe next week. But for example, uh, sometimes he asks for just a little bit at a time. Because if he, he knows that if you were asked uh, all at once to persuade us into a big thing all at once, that most of us would say, no, we're not going to do that. That's the way that he schemed into Eve's heart from Genesis chapter 3, verse 1. He didn't come right out and say to Eve, you need to eat that apple. There was a series of small steps that he took to bring Eve to the point in which she finally said, I'm going to eat that apple. And uh, he was using a whole um, series of questions and ways that he would work her so that she would weaken her resolve to obey God. And so he said to her, has God said? Immediately trying to put doubt into Eve's mind of whether or not that's what God had actually said to her or not. And we find ourselves being um, that same sort of thing being used to us when we're unfamiliar with the scripture or where we want to break what we know is a particular scripture. And he says, you know, to her, are you sure you're not mistaken, Eve? 
After all, you know that God is a really generous God. Look at this garden and look at all the incredible fruits that God has provided, all the different foods that God has provided for you. Are you sure that he, he said you can't eat this one? Because after all, he said you can eat everything in the garden. Why would he all of a sudden say that you can't eat this one particular fruit? Why would he Eve, deny you the best of all the fruits when he's given you so much? And so just with a series of questions and deceitfulness, he wears her down. I love the way one old writer put it. He says he digs about and he loosens the root of her faith. And then the tree falls more easily with the next gust of temptation. So the strategies of Satan are numerous. Um, one of the things that uh, I think we ought to know is that we talked about when Satan was created and it was certainly at least when this world was created and he's had years to study human nature years thousands of years to study human nature and human activities and he's continually working at increasing his craft and certainly there's no temptation that is overtaking you that such that is common to man Paul reminds us but Satan individualizes his temptations for each of us he knows us well one person has written that he's the greatest intelligence spy ever and so for Eve, he offered her an apple. For Noah, it was a grape. For Gehazi, it was a change of clothes. For Judas, it was a bag of silver. There are similarities to his strategies, but there are unique applications to each one of us as a follower of Christ. We also understand that throughout our lives, we will face our adversary. It's not that he just comes for a moment and then he's gone for the rest of our life. If we stand uh, for this week, then we're, we're free until the day Christ comes. We understand that uh, the Bible tells us again and again that uh, Satan comes from again and again to tempt us. We get this picture from Jesus after he had been led out into the wilderness to be tempted. And he stood against uh, Satan. Luke tells us that he left him until the next opportunity came. And so there's this constant reminder that our opponent is scheming against us, that this invisible world in which we interact with is constantly at us. And so we need to understand what he's up to. And one of the things that the scripture uh, tells us and we need to know is that Satan chooses when to tempt us. He's been given enough free reign by God that he works in a number of ways. Ecclesiastes 3.1 is a text of scripture that we always use in a positive sense, but it also is true in the negative sense that there is every, for everything there is a season and a time for every matter under the heaven. That is so true in our walk with God, even when it comes to temptation or the accusations that Satan hurls our way. There's a time for them. A little bit later in Ecclesiastes, it says, for man does not know his time when his hour will come. As fish are caught in a cruel net or birds are taken in a snare, so men are trapped by evil times that unexpectedly fall upon them. And there's a reality that, that uh, often our temptations come when we're distracted, when we're caught off guard, when we least expect them to come into our life. That's when often the tempter comes into our world. He knows how to use the seasons of our life. He knows how to use the circumstances of our life to at the most ideal moment from his point of view to tempt or excuse, accuse us. I don't know if you've thought of the seasons of temptation in your life. Uh, there's some general ones that I'm going to mention, but there's specific ones as well. I had a significant period of temptation in my life for years. And it was always during exam time for a period of about four weeks in 
May when I was uh, finishing up exams, either at university or at seminary. It was just one of the most um, brutal times of temptation for me. I, I still don't know exactly why to this day, but that was a particular time in which Satan um, yearly plied his trade with me. But there are some other general realities. I think one of the, one of the, the general seasons at which Satan begins to uh, work, in, it work his, his way in human life is even from birth. And you say, from birth? That's a bit crazy, Paul. Well, no, the, the Bible tells us that we are born with a sinful nature. The Bible tells us that we are born as those who have already offended God. And what Satan does, I think, in those times is he is happy to let things grow, to just nurture things uh, such that things grow and gain strength as a, 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 a little young one gets older and older. Uh, sometimes we see actions or behaviors of very, very young children, and the parents' response is, isn't that cute? And we think, well, no, it's not really that cute. You know, it's something that you ought to be on top of. And isn't it strange that the very first words that many children learn is yes? No, it's not, is it? One of the very first words that children learn is no. And so already in their little hearts, they're beginning to, um, uh, Satan is able to work. But what about when one is a new Christian? Some of you can go back to that day when you first responded by putting your faith and trust in Jesus Christ. And the next number of months were probably very difficult for many of you. It's a, a season when Satan does all that he can to try and remove that word that's been implanted in us to weaken our faith that we put in Jesus Christ. And so if you um, know somebody or are praying for somebody to come to Christ and they do come to Christ, don't stop praying, but spend time with them, talk with them, come alongside of them, because know that during the initial stages of their new birth that they are going to be under particular attack from the evil one. What about times of adversity when we're enduring some great affliction in our lives? I think sometimes those are some of the times in which Satan attacks us in, in, with the most strenuous of his attacks. Um, this is old language or an old example, but it will illustrate the truth about how sometimes when we're at in the greatest of afflictions, Satan comes along. And actually the way through that affliction is to commit the very sin that he's tempting us to do. For example, one writes, suppose your family falls on hard times and you see no way out of your predicament. This is the very moment Satan will come and whisper in your ear. What are you going to do? Surely God would not have you and your children starve. Your neighbor's garden is just beyond the hedge. He has enough to spare. The night is dark. Who will see if you step across and take only what you need? And so in times of affliction and difficulty, he tries to undermine our confidence and our trust that God will meet and provide for our needs. Another time, I think, when we face the attacks of the evil one are uh, times of service, when God has called us to service or when we are serving. It might be called uh, considering serving as an elder or a deacon. It can be a brutal time of attack initially or when you're silver, serving in a children's ministry or you're serving as an usher or you're working behind the scenes and you say, you know what, I'm going to commit my time to serving God and using my gift and abilities for God. And Satan comes and he undermines and he accuses and he throws all kinds of things into your face of why you shouldn't or why you couldn't or why you're disqualified. And so times of service are times when we feel the attacks of the evil one. What I've found over time and others have also indicated this is that often in the last hours of our life, that's when some people face some of the most vicious attacks of Satan. 
He can't prevent them from going into heaven, but he can certainly do whatever he can to weaken their faith and their trust and their assurance in God, to flash things before their minds about their life and the way that they've lived and say, God is going to accept you? Are you kidding? And so often, the last season of our life is a season of temptation and accusation. So that's sort of when um, we can face, and you and your own life need, life need to learn some of the specific times when Satan comes into your life so that you can stand against his wiles. Another thing I want to remind us of and just tell us a little bit of is that the danger of either attributing too much power to Satan or not enough power to him, of overestimating him or underestimating him. We underestimate him sometimes when we say, well, I've got this one. I can handle this on my own. You know, after all, the armor is just a little bit too heavy. It's a little bit too bulky. And it takes a long time to kind of put on all the armor that God describes for us to put on. And after all, who really has time for prayer? I've got this one. I can handle it. You know the word that Paul uses in Ephesians 6 uh, about the, um, uh, the struggle with Satan? It's a, it's a word that is used to... Um, to uh, rendered wrestle. It's a word that describes hand-to-hand combat. It's a word that describes wrestling on the ground, so to speak. It's, a, it's the same image that we have of Joseph wrestling with the, or Jacob wrestling with the angel all night, and he, he wrestled all night long. It was this hand-to-hand combat. And so we ought never, ever to underestimate our struggle with the evil one. Paul talks about the formidable nature of our enemy, rulers, authorities, powers. And yet so many tend to just discount them and write them off. On the other hand, sometimes people overestimate the power of Satan. And this is a, another sort of pendulum swing that's a dangerous one. And we attribute too much power and too much influence and too much authority to him. And we, some people see a devil behind everything. But scripture tells us, no, you can resist. Be sober-minded, be watchful. Put on the whole armor of God so that you may be able to stand. And when the evil day comes, you may be found able to stand. And so we can stand, even though there is incredible power that we're up against. It needn't be everything is of the devil or nothing is from the devil. There's a whole world that falls right in between that. I was reading, and I have been reading again and again, an article by Tim Keller on Puritan Resources for Counseling. And it's an incredible article, I don't know, 25 pages long. And he just goes through uh, the resources that are offered up from the great pastoral healers of the 17th century, um, pastors of the soul. And he references, uh, for example, a particular a sermon that he read of Richard Baxter on melancholy which we would understand as depression today. And he, he talks about this um, sermon in such a way that we understand the complexity with which these great Puritan pastoral men dealt with issues of the soul. And so in this particular sermon, Baxter opens up four different reasons for, for, um, uh, for, for depression, which I think we could understand. Wow, there's a complexity behind even depression in an individual's life. And so one of the things that he says is often behind de- depression and one has to work it through are there simply physical or physiological causes that it might be due to diet. It, it might be due to needing more, more rest. It might be uh, due, as I said, to eating food properly. There, there might be some physiological reason behind the depression that a per- person is experiencing. 
Or he said for others it might be a psychological cause. Uh, there are some people who are just psychologically um, weaker in that particular constitution of the body. It's their temperament. And so sometimes there are people that they just need love and affection and encouragement more than others. And they, they need to have people come alongside of them and walk with them. But then he says, for others, there is a moral cause behind depression. And I've seen this, and people don't want to admit this sometimes, but sin can bring people into depression. You read some of the imprecatory psalms where we feel so guilty about something or so overwhelmed by something or angry about something. Sometimes it's, it's bitterness in our soul or it's anger towards someone who we can't forgive or he won't forgive. And so that just weighs heavy on us and it just brings us down and makes us downcast. And then he says there's depression that is caused by the devil. So it's not just a simplistic approach to the problems of the human soul. And this is what I love about Scripture. Scripture isn't a simplistic approach to anything. It's complex, and some of these old Puritans understood the breadth of the issues that we face as we walk in this world. And so we need to study this tactics and the schemes of Satan in general and specifically for our lives. What does Paul say? Remember, we are not ignorant of his designs. Do you know the ways of Satan? Do you know his strategies? Do you know his tactics? Do you know his wiles? Do you understand the way that he schemes? Do you understand when he schemes, both generally and specifically in your life? Thirdly, temptations and accusations. In the word of one of these great men of old that I've been reading, I've been soaking in these guys. It has been such a help to my soul that God has brought me here. But William Gurnall says, as he's now uh, beginning to move into describing the way of Satan, he says, and now we're going to consider this matter of Satan's subtlety by examining his two main strategies, tempting and accusing. The two main strategies of Satan, tempting and accusing. And what Satan does is, is, is we've understood that he is a liar by nature and he is a slanderer. That's, that's what he is as an adversary. And so he lies and he slandered us. And how does he work? Well, he stimulates the talk that goes on in your heart. You guys all know that, don't you? We talk to ourselves all day long. Where does that self-talk come from? What stimulates it? How do we regulate it? How do we sanctify it? Tim Keller has been so helpful for uh, helping me understand this. In temptation, what Satan often does is he comes along and he gives us too high a view of ourselves so that you go and do things that you shouldn't do. What Satan is actually doing is he's hiding from you God's holiness, God's purity, God's righteousness, God's justice. He hides that from us and he minimizes the gravity of sin and he he says well that's not really a big deal and sin's not really such a bad thing and so as he tempts us he he hides from our view the the righteousness of God the holiness of God and the sinfulness of our sin and he plays up God's love to us we need to face temptation with a growing realization that there's no such thing as a small sin we'll, we'll talk about this maybe in a couple of weeks but Every sin that we commit is a sin against an infinite God. Such that David could say, against you and you alone have I sinned. All sins, however little they may appear, are still against the holy God. 
And the Bible says, does it not, that the wages of sin is death. Not the wages of really big sins. Not the wages of a whole bunch of sins. Not the wages of really, really awful sins. But the wages of sin is death. Be it little or be it big. I love the example, and where we're going next after this is in the life of Joseph. And when Joseph stood before Potiphar's wife, who day after day tempted him to go to bed with her, remember his response? How could I do this thing and sin against God? He understood the holiness of God, and he understood the sinfulness of sin. And so when temptation comes our way, what Satan tries to do is undermine our view of the holiness of God or the sinfulness of sin. But in accusation, he does the exact opposite. He, he, he creates in us too low a view of ourselves so that we go about and do things that we shouldn't. Satan hides from us God's love. He plays up God's holiness and wrath for our sin, and he diminishes God's love for us. John Newton was dealing with a young man. They used to write letters a lot in the olden days, and he was having a letter conversation with a young man who was heavy under the weight of accusation in his life. And he kept saying, I'm so awful. I'm so bad. I'm, there's no way that God is ever going to love me or accept me. If only he knew what I had done, or he does know he's never going to love me. And Newton's response to him was along these lines, you cannot be too aware of all your inward and inbred sins. But you may be, in fact, you are improperly affected by them. It's a beautiful line. You're improperly affected by them. You express not only a low opinion of yourself, which is certainly right, but you also express too low an opinion of the person, work, and promises of the Redeemer, which is certainly wrong. When Satan insinuates to us that our sins are too great to forgive, Remind yourself that some of the greatest sinners that have ever been have been saved. The Bible tells us again and again that there is nothing that prevents anyone from coming to God. So how do these things work? Well, Satan uses temptation and his accusation to lie and to slander us. And he leads us to think in ways and, and to move in certain things to have too high a view of ourselves or too low a view of ourselves, too low a view of God's holiness and too low a view of sin and, and too high a view of God's love. I will never reach it. Let me give you just a few examples of this. There are many. Many, like dozens and dozens, but I just want to unpack a few of them and some of the self-talk that goes with them to give you an example of how knowing the strategies of Satan and what to say can help us. So with temptation, he shows you the hook, but he hides the bait. Which means that he gets you to focus on short-term pleasures of sin and hides from you the long-term misery and pain. So that you say to yourself, well, it really can't be all that bad. After all, how could something that feels so right be so wrong? He shows us the bait, but he hides the hook. He gets you to rationalize sin as a virtue. I'm not really greedy. I'm just thrifty. I'm not really nosy. I'm just concerned. I'm not an alcoholic. I'm just sociable. By showing you the sins of Christian leaders so that you say to yourself, 
He did it too. Nobody's really pure. In a particular era of marriage in the 80s and 90s, this had a devastating impact on the church. As those in high-profile positions in the church got divorced and remarried for reasons that weren't biblical, and people in the pew just looked at them and said, well, if they can do it, I can do it. By overstressing the mercy of God so that, you say, so that what you say to yourself is, do it. God will forgive you. That's his job. Have you ever heard that lie whispered in your ear? By making you bitter over suffering so that what you say is, I've suffered enough, I deserve this. Do you know why so many powerful men in the world are having affairs? Because they say to themselves, nobody knows how hard I've worked. Nobody knows how many sacrifices I've made. Nobody knows what I've done to contribute to this and that, so I deserve this. Another temptation of Satan is by showing Christians how many bad people seem to be having great lives. And so the self-talk goes something like this, I might as well do it. Playing by the rules doesn't pay off. Here's one more. By getting you to compare one part of your life with another. And so the self-talk goes something like this. I do this, and I do that. I'm a great father. I'm a great provider. So it's okay that I do this. We compartmentalize our lives so that we say, well, I've got this really, really good compartment, and that sort of gives me some justification to have some freedom in this particular area. Those are just seven or eight of temptations and the lies and the self-talk. What about flipping over to accusation? This is what William Gurnall writes after he's done a section of temptation and he's moving on to accusation. He says, by this time, you should be well aware of Satan's temptations. He spent a lot of times outlining Satan's temptation. He says, no doubt he's often peddled them at your door, for he delights to gain a saint as his steady customer. You may be a hard sell, and I pray to God that you are, but do not for a moment think that Satan will be easily turned away. If you do not like his temptations, then he will reach into his sack of accusations and display them so cleverly you will think he brings them at God's request. Here's four accusations. By causing us to look at our sin and not our Savior. By causing us to look at our sin and not our Savior. We've heard it said, haven't you, numerous times that when you've had um, one bad thing said to you, one negative thing said to you, you need to have five or six to counterweigh that and to sort of take away its force and its power. Well, what Thomas Brooks is really saying here is that for every one look you take at your sin, took five looks at your Savior. Secondly, by causing Christians to obsess over past sins that, they have, that have caused damage that can't be undone. So you say to your... So the devil makes sure that you never allow for the goodness and sovereignty of God to override any consequences of your sin. Thirdly, 
by making Christians think that the troubles they are going through must be punishments. That's me. By making Christians think that the troubles they are going through must be punishments. So you say to yourselves, this wouldn't have happened unless God was mad at me. By maybe making people think that the inner struggles they have and the feelings they have, Christians couldn't possibly have. And so you say to yourself, if I were a real Christian, I wouldn't be having these thoughts and desires. That is such a lie. One of the things that I've been thinking about is that verse I've encouraged you to put in your head, for no temptation has overtaken you, but such that is common to man. There's the reality that there is not a single temptation that ever, any one of us will ever face that is unique to us. But the devil comes along and he says, you're the only one who has ever thought that. You're the only one who has ever done that. So there's no use in going to talk to anybody about it. They're just going to judge you, and they're just going to look down at you. And they're just, they're just going to look sideways at you like you've lost your marbles. Don't go tell anyone. Let's just keep this between you and I. And so we fight it, and we live with it, and he accuses us, and he tempts us. It's a lie. Because we find help as we talk to others who have gone before us, who have wrestled with the same thing. And as they encourage us, how they have conquered it and how they have defeated it. Do you recognize any of these in your life? Here's just some of the ways in which Satan tempts and accuses us. So here's the good part. I want to provide, and depending on how long we go, um, opportunities or remedies for how we deal with these. The remedy that I want to present to you today is the gospel. I want you to understand how the gospel undermines the temptations and the accusations of Satan. I want to help you understand how you need to learn to preach the gospel to yourself, how your self-talk needs to be self-talk that is biblical and that is infused with the truths of the gospel. We need to be able to say to ourselves as we're talking to ourselves, stop it. Stop thinking like that. Stop listening to that lie. What is the truth of God's word? What is the truth about God? What is the truth about his love? Just stop going down that road. It's part of our self-talk. The gospel is our armor. When we're sober-minded, what we do is we think of the gospel. When we resist, we resist in the gospel. You know, there, all of the religions in the world, except Christianity, are religions that drive us to good works, drive us to performance. And if you believe that you can save yourself through your own efforts and through your own achievements and through your own performance, if you really believe that you can save yourselves, then you will sometimes feel like a real sinner because you realize you've failed. And the thing that you wanted to do, the good deed that you thought you could manage, the, the way that you wanted to control your thoughts or that behavior, you, you can't do it and, and you, you fail. And then the flip side of that is that sometimes you will feel loved and accepted and you'll say, oh man, I've done a good job today. And so you roller coaster between, oh, I failed. Oh, I've done a great job. And it epitomizes our life. But if you believe in the gospel, if you believe that Jesus died for you on the cross as your substitute, 
that he took the penalty for your sin so that when you believe in him, you know that all of your guilt has been put on him and absorbed in him. Satan has no accusation against you. All your guilt, all your shame has been placed upon Jesus Christ. He has absorbed it in the cross and he has paid the penalty for it. And on the other hand, all of his righteousness and his obedience has been put on you, so you are loved in acceptance as he is loved in acceptance by God. Do you understand how helpful it is to understand the gospel? That means that every Christian walks around with these two facts stuck in his head. I know I'm a sinner, and I am lost in myself, and my sin was so great that nothing less than the death of the Son of God could save me. My sin was so bad that that's what God had to do, that that's what Christ had to do. Oh, wretched man that I am. On the other hand, I'm so absolutely loved. I'm completely accepted. I am as loved now as I will ever be even four billion years into eternity. God can never love me anymore tomorrow than he loves me today. And to embrace the reality that you are loved by God eternally, perfectly, completely because of what Jesus Christ has done. The first fact demolishes temptation then. If you understand the gospel, you know that the thing you're being tempted to do, Jesus died so that you wouldn't do. Jesus suffered so that you wouldn't do that. So how can we have anything to do with it? And on the other hand, when you're being accused, the fact that God loves you eternally, perfectly, is your way to talk to Satan and say, get lost. I am loved by God in Christ. This is the strategy. This is the the foundational strategy of every strategy we can have to go against our opponent is to understand the gospel. You put on the gospel. You stand in the gospel. You resist in the gospel the death of Jesus Christ. One wrote, talking about being under accusation, the remedy against this is to look upon all your sins as charged to the account of Christ. He was wounded for our transgressions, bruised for our iniquities. The chastisement of our peace was upon him. By his stripes we are healed. Thomas Brooks goes on and he writes this. He says, you know the wife who said to the bill collector, if I owe you anything, go to my husband. So the believer says to justice or the devil, if I owe you anything, go to my Christ who has underwritten me fully. I must not sit down discouraged under the debts which Christ to the uttermost has fully and completely paid, nailed them to his cross. And the remedy against this accusation is to solemnly consider that believers must repent of being discouraged by their sins. Hey, Father, I am sorry. Forgive me for thinking so little of the death of your son, for his work on my behalf for his forgiveness that I have received for everything and anything I have ever done. God did not give a believer a new heart for it to be rent and torn in pieces by discouragement. This is how you stand, loved ones. 
The death and the resurrection of Christ is the foundation of all resistance, of all sober-mindedness, of all watching. If you would stand, be strong in the Lord. This is how you deal with the temptations and the accusations of that ancient serpent, our adversary. Father, that's a lot for us to take in but it continues to just give us a big picture of your word. I pray, Father, that we would be profoundly aware that there is so much going on in this world than meets the eye, that natural and scientific explanations cannot explain everything about us or about our world, that they can help us learn a lot, but they fall short when it comes to describing evil and the stuff that we find within our own hearts and our own minds. I thank you for Jesus Christ. I thank you for his death. I thank you for the gospel. I thank you for the knowledge that there is nothing that is outside of the forgiveness of Christ. Would you help us to stand in temptation this week? Would you help us fight off accusation this week? in the work of our Lord Jesus Christ, in the gospel. I pray this in Jesus' name. Amen.